You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA. We appreciate being a part of your day. On today's show, we're going to cover a pretty wide swath of topics. We're going to kick things off here in just a moment with Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Markets are a little subdued today, but yesterday's action certainly changed some of the technical perspectives. We'll get Garrett's thoughts on how things look for the week ahead. And then in segment two, we're going to talk tax policy. Seven different U.S. states are poised to make their own moves on wealth taxes. We're going to get the details from Jared Walzak, the vice president of state projects at the Tax Foundation. Before, in segment number three, we're going to talk through one of the most important inputs for farms and ranches across the country, and that's energy, specifically crude oil products. Brian Milney, lead refined products editor at DTN, will be joining us with a look at what's happening in the oil product sector. What's going on with diesel after that fall scare? And what do you expect to see demand-wise as we look out through 2023? We'll have all of that coming on later in the program. But before before we get to that, let's turn our focus back to the markets. Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk joins us now. And Garrett, yesterday saw a big move in the corn market. Technically, did we change any support or resistance levels? It was, it was, a, it was an important day. You know, we had the bullish report on Thursday. We had a typical Friday with some consolidation. Uh, and then, uh, and then yesterday was a big breakout, and we're trying to we're trying to make a good trade here in March corn, uh, potentially build some some technical momentum to potentially maybe see seven dollars. And I really didn't think that we you know see that again, considering ethanol margins where we're at. But you know we're getting a little bit, bit of a, a kick from from crude being higher here. But if you get above this uh, 687, 688 level. Uh, which we already traded through 11-week highs here uh, with that move yesterday, but that opens up that door to that 704 and three quarters level from the last day in October, and then you know potentially uh, that the uh, October highs at 711 three quarters. So I'm I'm always kind of a proponent of you know corn is a game of quarters, and 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 uh, after the the crop report, where we go to? We went right to 675, and we consolidated Friday, and then we decided that we wanted to go. So. Uh, market structure is, is supportive. I mean, we had a lot of fun buying corn and soybeans into the end of the year. Uh, so they were obviously looking for uh, a, uh, a bullish report or hoping for a bullish report. They got it, and now we're seeing some follow-through in here. Garrett, you mentioned that 704 is the next target once we get over this high 680 marker. What's it going to take to get there? You mentioned the ethanol uh, portrait looks a little more dim. The export portrait looks a little more dim. What's What could be the news that would give it the juice to get to 704? Well, I mean, the, 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 the corn, you know, corn S&D is tight. I mean, the, the USDA, like I said off the crop report, is, is uh, the albatross that's hanging around the corn bull's neck all, all fall has been, well, exports are, are poor, exports are poor. Well, we had a 200 million bushel production cut due to harvested acres in the southern plains. So then the USDA made this massive export cut, and we don't, we don't have that argument anymore, you know, from a fundamental standpoint. And now U.S. corn is the cheapest corn in the world. I mean, Brazil has corn, but they're focused on soybean harvest. So there's really, you know, we're the market right now. So uh, the risk is, is that, you know, China comes in and buys something. Um, you know, obviously that's a risk, but U.S. exports, you know, 
air quotes should, you know, improve from this point forward, and, and we've, we've got a new line in the sand to work off of. So uh, the other thing that is beneficial is we finally, you know, for four weeks, we've been trading crude in the 70 to $80 range, uh, and crude's up a dollar or so here today. We're, we're trading almost $82. Uh, that's beneficial. If we can get a crude rally beginning of the year, and I don't know if this is the beginning of the year positioning from all the macro funds, and this is all one big buying whoosh, which it kind of does look like it is, um, you know, that's all supportive. But uh, like I said, you know, the, the the underlying issue in ethanol is is not just margins; it's gasoline demand, and that's that's an aspect of the overall economy. That's a great point, Garrett. You know, thinking about the overall economy, we've seen growing demand for veg oils here over this past year as uh, Ukraine's been out of that sunflower market. Soybean crush, we've been watching it all year, has been phenomenal domestically. Is it starting to back off here as we get deeper into winter? They've definitely, yesterday's, uh, yesterday's crush report, NOPA crush report, was a double whammy for the, for the, uh, for the bulls. We had a poor crush number. Uh, and now marketing year to date, uh, crush is, or NOPA crush is running about 1% behind year over year. But the one thing that has been kind of supportive, you know, obviously this, this is a story is over a year old, is renewable, you know, renewable diesel and soybean oil demand, along with the Ukraine war and everything else, um, that's, been, that's, that's driven fun buying to the bean oil complex. But the start of this marketing year, uh, bean oil yields have just, fallen off the table. The bean oil yield, I don't know if it's a function of the bean crop or what, um, but the, the bean oil yields have just not as been as good as last year. So we had a compounding issue with poor crush and then poor oil yields, and these oil stocks, when they're supposed to be building, have actually been either flat or declining. Uh, that changed yesterday when we actually had a decent rebound in oil oil stocks, or excuse me, oil yields, and that actually put the oil stocks estimates uh, above the highest trade guess. Um, but I still think the underlying fact that the, the oil crush is running behind uh, the demand out here on the back end uh, should support oil. And the other aspect of it is is, is market structure because we've got this record long in meal, and we have you know front end meal trading to 487 this morning on its highs. Uh, that market's due for a correction, and that's all driven by the Argentine drought, obviously. But you know, when that when that meal market corrects, uh, that's going to be supportive to bean oil as well. Garrett, when that meal market corrects, what are you watching for as a potential level of support on the downside? Well, that's a that's a good question. You know, I think you know we we've, we've kind of gone uh, we've kind of gone parabolic. So whenever we have these kind of moves in here. Um, you know, it's kind of Katie bar the door when these funds do decide to get out. Um, you know, near-term support, we had that flag pattern from like 450 to 470. So the top end of that 470 flag or the banner, uh, excuse me, uh, pennant, I should say, uh, at 470 down to 450 should be your consolidation point. So that's, I mean, you're a good 10 to $30 before you find uh, major support on this break. All right, Garrett, before we let you go, the livestock markets here, protein, cattle trade. What's your expectation this week on fat cattle? Um, I'm actually looking for things to be fairly steady. Um, I have heard some uh, early numbers, but I'm not sure I can repeat them. But uh, we have kind of been consolidated around this 157, 158 level. And I think the last time we talked, we, we didn't think that we could uh, see much push above 159. And we we couldn't, uh, but I think that we're going to try to hold steady in this 157 to 158 area. Feeder cattle then holding steady right in there as well? 
They are. I mean, I'm surprised that we haven't really seen more. They've, they've been a little bit weak here this week. Um, I'm surprised we haven't really seen a little bit more. In fact, we're, we're up 20 to 60 here today, but I'm surprised we haven't seen a little bit more weakness uh, this week considering the corn rally, to be honest with you. Um, but they're holding, they're holding in here fairly well. They're holding in there. And Garrett, out in the countryside, cash sales of feeder still running strong, have you heard? Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, you know, we had uh, we sold some uh, some seven eight weights. They're one eighties, one eighty fives, or what the those are trading. I do note that uh, five weights are about thirty cents cheaper than what they were this point last year. All right, things to keep an eye on. All these markets are volatile heading into this next year. We've been speaking with Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And folks, stick around. We're going to take a look at changing tax policy across the country. Stay here for more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I've been farming my whole life. I don't need somebody to come out here and state the obvious. I don't need anybody to explain my farm to me. My local co-op works with CHS, and they know what I need when I need it. A global network of support. Local expertise. And valuable market options. We need a co-op that's here for us. So we can own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. Are you heading to NCBA in New Orleans? On Thursday, February 2nd, stop by the Christian Hansen booth, number 1639, for some exciting live radio. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the Christian Hansen booth. That's number 1639 from 9 to 10 a.m. on Thursday. On Friday, stop by the Learning Lounge. At 1130, I'll be facilitating Christian Hansen's panel discussion on the benefits from the daily consumption of probiotics in beef cattle. We'll see you in New Orleans. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders 
can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks, to AOA. We appreciate you joining us today. And, folks, over this next week, you are going to be hearing some discussion about taxes. Interestingly, though, it's not going to be coming from the federal level. The push we're seeing here this week, perhaps into the next week, is a state-level push. Seven different states looking to change the way they tax wealth. An interesting twist. It's not an issue I'm all that fluent on. So to help break this down, we're joined next by Jared Walzak. He's the vice president of state projects at the Tax Foundation. He has been watching this issue as it has percolated. And Jared, what are the seven states that are looking at making some changes to wealth taxes? Well, thanks for having me. Yes, there are seven states looking at this. Uh, California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Illinois, uh, Maryland, New York, and Washington. And these are the first seven, but I think you'll see this in several other states this year and in the coming years as well. And what's interesting, Jared, is this is a coordinated effort by these states to try and get these wealth taxes on the books. Can you talk a little bit about the discussions that have been happening at these states and what we could expect to see over the coming weeks? What's really interesting to me is the rationale for this. Um, this isn't because states need revenue. In fact, even though obviously we're entering into a period of more economic uncertainty, most states are at their highest ebb ever for revenues, and they're going to be good for the foreseeable future. This is more a preference about creating new progressivity in the tax code, um, finding ways to tax higher earners more and high net worth individuals. And depending on the design, some of these are truly for the wealthiest of individuals, but some of them could hit small businesses, they could hit farmers, um, they could hit some people who maybe we don't think of as the ultra rich. And Jared, it's interesting. You mentioned it depends on what the design looks like of these programs. Since it's not a federal program, each of these different states is pursuing different avenues. Are there any consistent themes through them? Really, the only consistent theme is that all of them are seeking to tax um, net worth, assets, um, accumulated wealth of you know, higher net worth individuals. Everyone has a different approach to it. Sometimes that's because state constitutions differ and what you can accomplish may look different. So in one state, it might be what you think of as a pure wealth tax. In another state, it might be a tax on your unrealized capital gains, the gains of you know, things you own that you haven't disposed of. In yet another state, it might be um, you know, changes um, you know, more through you know, an an unearned income tax. There's just different ways that this is being approached and sort of tacking onto this. There's also look at changing a state tax thresholds. That's not one of the wealth taxes, but it's sort of in this package and um, increasing uh, capital gains tax rates at the state level. And that estate tax piece is also very important to the agriculture community. In the bad old days, you know, we you probably all remember the stories about farms that had to be broken up because of estate tax burdens. And for the most part, policymakers at both the federal and the state level fixed that. Even where they're still in a state tax, for the most part, that's not a problem. But now, as some of these thresholds are potentially coming down substantially, this becomes an issue again where you might have states where to be able to pay the estate tax burden, a farm has to be broken up. 
Right. And that's something that ag has grappled with for years on the estate tax. But now in these states that are pursuing wealth taxes, we could theoretically see the same thing come down just on an annual tax basis, because as our audience knows, a lot of farmers have significant wealth, Jared, but it's not liquid. How are these states going to calculate what wealth is? And then how do they expect folks to pay taxes on something that isn't that doesn't have a value? Well, if you have a great idea of how they can calculate this, you might want to get in contact with state revenue officials, because even though these bills are going through, they have not figured it out. Uh, you know, in the United States, the only forms of wealth taxation we've had have been property taxes, both real you know, property, you know, like your, your land and your improvements and personal property, which can be machinery and equipment. Uh, this could be a combine, um, but it could also be, you know, any sort of business machinery and equipment. We have those. They're a form of wealth tax, but we don't tax the rest of wealth. Where it gets really hard to assess is if you're a small business owner, or maybe you have a partnership, uh, maybe you have a farm or you know some sort of collective there. Um, what is the value of that? Who assesses that value? It's not publicly traded. There's not a stock. There's not shares. There's no way to publicly assess that. Um, you know the difficulties even with real property where there may be comparables. It's difficult, and there's different ways that this is done. But you put together all of this and Assessors have no idea how to do this. It's never been done effectively. Uh, there are a few countries that have these. They've struggled with this question over and over again. And the liquidity issue is huge. Um, you know, if we're talking about, say, stocks, you can sell some of them. You can still sell some of your shares to pay an annual burden. If you're talking about ownership of something, do you have to break it apart? to be able to pay the burden. These things are not liquid. In some cases, there may not even be a willing buyer. If you're starting a new business, um, maybe you're a, a startup somewhere, you don't have proven worth. You can't sell a share of your business yet, but you have to pay a tax on what someone thinks it's worth. It is a brave new world to be sure, Jared, these proposals. And I'm wondering, have we seen any states release their proposal in total yet, or are all of these states just hashing it out independently as we sit here today? Tomorrow, there will be a coordinated release of legislation in seven states. We know basically what it will look like in a few of them because our understanding is that they will be similar to proposals from previous years. So uh, California and Washington have tried this before, and our understanding is that these will be very similar to those previous bills. In other states, this is brand new. Uh, we will see what they've come up with. Okay. It, it is going to be very interesting to watch this. As you understand it right now, and of course, we haven't seen the final legislation quite yet. Are these wealth taxes targeting particularly high net worth individuals? Do we have any baselines for what level of wealth they're targeting to begin? It's going to vary from state to state. In some cases, very high net worth individuals. California's previous bill started at $15 million. Um, but in others, uh, not necessarily. I mean, New York has looked at this for maybe a million dollars or higher. And I mean, I know that's a lot of money, but in net worth, that's not that much. And I mean, you can talk about people who, you know, are asset rich, but cash poor that, I mean, that's a lot of small business owners. That's a lot of farmers. I mean, these are not necessarily, you know, high thresholds. You can have a million dollars in assets and not necessarily have significant income flows from which to pay taxes. So that's going to be what to watch. I mean, I would argue there's a concern, even if it's only hitting a small number of people in some states, what that does to uh, investments, what that does to entrepreneurship. Uh, but in some states, it may be hitting far more people.
Absolutely a $1 million threshold, though, while it is a lot of money, Jared, I've never had a million dollars. That's 100 acres of farm ground in Iowa gets you to a million dollars in net worth valuation, but that ground is only going to earn $3,000, a year. It's tough to make these pieces fit together. And you mentioned this is the first tranche you're expected to see, Jared, these conversations happening at, at other state houses across the country. Not on as coordinated a level, but it's something we're seeing more of, um, you know, Prior to the pandemic, if you look in 2019, if you look at what the agenda was in early 2020, uh, there was a desire to focus on more taxes on investment, on entrepreneurship, on certain industries. And the pandemic put everything on hold and then revenues were so high and federal transfers were so large that it was really hard to come back and say, hey, we've got this great new idea for substantially raising taxes. It doesn't matter who it's on. No one really had an appetite for that. Now, you know, that's sort of in the rear view window. It's not that revenues are bad. In most states, they're still good. But a lot of these ideas are coming back up. So these seven are where we're focused right now. But I do think it's coming elsewhere, too. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You mentioned earlier in the interview that we have seen some countries pursue these wealth taxes. And Jared, have they stuck with them? Is this a model that works for those countries that have tried it? Generally not. Uh, if you go back to 1965, that's when um, EU records basically begin and when you have OECD records. So the major um, developed countries within the OECD between 1965 and now, there have been 13 of them that have had a wealth tax. That dropped down to three as of last year. It's bumping back up to four this year. There's a new um, left-wing government in Colombia um, that is reintroducing one. Um, I believe it actually started January 1, so that's going back into effect. But these things have largely phased out in developed countries because they're incredibly hard to implement. Um, the assessments are extremely complex. They had to carve out tons of things because they just couldn't assess them at all. And they recognized both that they were economically destructive and that they drove people away, um, that they had significant outmigration of those affected by them. And if that was true at the national level, because frankly, it's hard to leave your country. Imagine what it means at the state level. It's not that hard for a high net worth individual to leave. And now when we're talking about the ag community, it's harder. You know, you, if, if this does end up hitting farmers, your land is your land. Um, maybe for a tech entrepreneur, uh, you know, if California does this, you know, Utah is a nice place to live. Right. It's easy to pack from the Bay Area to Austin. It's different when it's a farm ground. Jared, these these coordinated legislation release will be coming out tomorrow. Tax Foundation, I'm sure, is going to be on top of this. Will there be a place that our audience can go to get briefed on what you've learned from this legislation once it comes out? Yeah, absolutely. Our website, taxfoundation.org, we have a basic analysis now and we'll be doing follow up once there's more details. We'll be outlining that on our website. All right, folks, stay plugged into this issue. It's seven states right now. Illinois, the biggest ag state that might be talking about this, but it could come to more of us pay attention to these issues. We've been talking with Jared Walzak, Vice President of State Projects at the Tax Foundation. Jared, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And folks, stay with us when AOA returns. We're going to talk crude oil. Brian Milne of DTN will be joining us. We'll get a feel for where this market could be headed. Stay here for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
heading to MCBA in New Orleans? February's monthly grind is taking place live on the showroom floor on Wednesday, February 1st from 9 to 10 a.m. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. Also, on Thursday at 12.30 in the Learning Lounge, I'll be facilitating NCGA's panel discussion with special guests from the USMEF and Port of New Orleans on what you need to know about the value of trade and exports to your operation. We'll see you in New Orleans. Are you heading to NCBA in New Orleans? On Thursday, February 2nd, stop by the Christian Hansen booth, number 1639, for some exciting live radio. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the Christian Hansen booth. That's number 1639 from 9 to 10 a.m. on Thursday. On Friday, stop by the Learning Lounge. At 1130, I'll be facilitating Christian Hansen's panel discussion on the benefits from the daily consumption of probiotics in beef cattle. We'll see you in New Orleans. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at what's going on here in our ag commodity trade as we work through our Wednesday session. Stock futures, they're cautiously higher. Producer price index fell by half a percent in December. Analysts were looking for a drop of 0.1%, so maybe more signs that inflation could be cooling off a little bit. So we see stocks relatively quiet. Crude oil's up about $1.75 a barrel at last check, $81.93. So getting over that $80 barrel level just a little bit. In grains, uh, we're a little more mixed again after we dipped uh, from the overnight uh, session. We went down to some new lows, and now we're trying to climb off that. As we see quarter beans relatively mixed, a couple of cents either side of unchanged wheat prices. They are up moderately here as we work through our morning trade. They're really going to be watching quarter bean prices uh, after the rebound yesterday, challenging their late December highs late in the session. Buying interest seemed to dry up here early this morning. Will we get some more bullish action, though, as we work through the day? That remains to be seen. We're going to be watching the Argentine drought. That is a threat. Brazil's crops looking quite good, though. Rain chances are improving for parts of Argentina and southern Brazil, so that's something to watch. We do have a weaker dollar here today. Should be supportive, but so far... Things are just kind of trading mixed here as we work through the session. Cattle prices uh, gaining a little bit of ground after yesterday's sell-off. We're up moderately in the cattle trade, while hogs are down after yesterday's move to the upside, so giving back much of what we got uh, from yesterday. As far as cattle country goes, things very slow to start here this morning. Packer inquiry should start to improve, though, as the day progresses. We do have a cattle on feed report Friday. We need to keep that in mind as well. Again, overall mixed activity across grains and livestock as we work through Wednesday's session. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite.
You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate you joining us today. One of the major stories in 2022 was the energy complex went wild. We saw the Russia-Ukraine invasion. Crude oil prices went nuts. Natural gas prices went nuts. We started to see demand rebound around the world. Oil has been volatile since COVID started. As 2023 gets underway, I wanted to get an update on that market and how things look. So joining us now is Brian Milney. He works as the DTN Refined Products Editor, keeps his eye on the pulse of the oil and energy markets. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Yes, good morning. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we jump into where the the energy market could be headed, Brian, I want to circle back to one of those stories that was under heavy discussion in the fourth quarter of 2022, and that was the American diesel shortage. We just weren't producing enough. We were concerned we were going to run out. How has the industry dealt with that? Do we have a, a little more supply on hand? We are still low diesel supply, but the you could say we dodged a bullet, if you will, um, because of this warm weather diesel um, heating oil is interchangeable diesel in Northeast, where there is uh, a lot of homes and businesses that still use use heating oil. And it, it's been very warm, and that has limited the demand pull on that. So, um, so that was very helpful. Uh, you also had a lot of conservation. You know, when you have, you're a homeowner paying $6 a gallon for your heating oil, you do tend to turn the thermostat down. And we did see that happen. So that was beneficial. We also saw in the fourth quarter a slowdown in industrial production in the United States um, that has offset um, some consumption. In the, in the United States, diesel, I said, you know, used for heating oil, but it's also used in your commercial and industrial settings. And with the slowdown in, in manufacturing um, and slowdown in home building construction, that helped. And, and also, not only do we have some warm weather um, in the United States, there has been warm weather in Europe. Um, Europe depends uh, mightily on diesel and would try to pull more diesel for, to their shores. Um, their warm winter uh, has helped, um, you know, considering, uh, you know, right now they, they would get a lot of diesel from, from Russia, but they're not getting that much uh, diesel from Russia because of the Ukraine invasion. So, uh, so just go back, bring it back to the United States. So that has all helped. Uh, we are still low. We are still below the five-year average uh, by a good amount um, in the United States. Um, and it's going to remain um, tight going forward uh, because, as you mentioned, we just don't we're not making as much. We have less refining capacity um, in the United States than we did before. Um, so uh, that's limiting how much uh, we have in, in, in inventory. Now, but Brian, this past year, we saw diesel go to six plus dollars here in some places across the country. Are those profit levels enough to incentivize increased diesel production out of U.S. refineries going forward? You know, and they they did. U.S. refiners did um, do as much as they can to produce more diesel over gasoline. Uh, there's a formula that they'll use. They'll look to see where you know demand is strongest and try to produce more of the fuel that is needed. However, there are limitations to that. Um, there are numerous types of crude oil um, varieties out there. You have what they call your heavies and your lights, and um, diesel fuel is what they call a middle, middle of the barrel type of fuel. So 
Um, it usually it needs your heavier crudes really to make more diesel. But refiners can only make so much more diesel without producing also gasoline. So they did tweak the slate that way um, to produce as much diesel as they could. And, and like I said, the profit margins were, were astronomical. Um, so there was an extreme amount of incentive to do it. And you did see refiners um, holding off a lot of maintenance as well to keep on producing, to try to level that up, you know, level up the diesel uh, uh, um, inventory. But still, that does still remain a challenge because we're just not building refiners in the United States um, anymore. Since uh, it, globally, you know, there was uh, 1.5 million barrels per day of refining capacity taken offline permanently um, following COVID, we are going to see some refining capacity come back online, but really not that much in the United States. It's more international. Um, and that's got me wondering about oil prices over this next year. Brian, today we're watching oil up over 2%. We're seeing some concerns that the Chinese economy might be growing quickly again. As you look out here for oil price expectations, is the demand pull going to come back from Asia? That is absolutely something that the market is, is, is laser focused on. You know, what are you going to see from China uh, going forward? Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, China in the fourth quarter, um, th their demand was down about a million barrels per day. It's a big number. Uh, they had the zero COVID policy. Um, and that was um, keeping a lid on, on oil prices, quite frankly, because of uh, the lack of Chinese demand. Now we, we see that they made a complete about face on their zero COVID policy. You are seeing travel pick up mightily. Uh, the Chinese have their um, New Year coming up or the Lunar New Year. Um, and and there's a travel expected to be very strong. However, we're not so sure on the manufacturing side. We do expect demand to come back from China. Estimates are that you could see, you know, China's demand grow by like 600,000 barrels per day to even a million barrels per day, somewhere in that range. Um, but the, the key and what we're really watching is what happens on the factory floor. Um, these the zero COVID, the COVID um, uh, infections and death rates are surging over there in China right now. Do they have enough workers um, there to, to to maintain that? And then when you and then you, the other component that's really important to note is China depends on a lot of its um, is selling a lot of goods um, globally. Um, so you know they're they're an exporting nation, and if indeed the world slips into recession you know what's that going to look like for for um you know exports for china so while we do see strong growth coming from china it is a key driver in in prices moving higher um it, the question is you know when exactly is, is are we going to really see this demand and when it does come back we don't anticipate the demand to be as strong as it was um in, in you know this is their economic economic power rather as strong as it was uh pre-covid um so we're looking at that overall chinese demand will come back by by the end of the year um and it's really a balancing act to see you know do we bring in enough production to offset that and how is the world economy doing production. I mean, that is the wild card question. We've seen the oil industry vilified really over the past several years, and there's been claims that's slowing down production. Brian, are we seeing rigs, rig counts start to rise here in the Permian and Bakken and other uh, crude oil places? Yes, there's, yes, there's been a steady increase in oil production um, in the United States. 
Um, the Permian you mentioned, certainly a very strong, big driver of that growth for sure. Uh, but the growth rate is is moderated. It's not like what we saw, you know, a few years back with the shale boom. Um, there is much more discipline in the production going up. In fact, you know, the expectation is for you know U.S. production this year to increase by about three percent. Um, so it's it, it's uh, you know it's which is you know a good number in one sense, but it's not like the gangbuster percentage gains we were seeing a few years back. Um, the, the reason there's certainly incentive to, to produce and, 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 uh, producers are doing so. However, when you're looking at that, there, there is some questions on, you know, their long-term inventory. When you're looking out eight, nine, 10 years, you know, how, how are those wells going to continue to produce? Um, and they're, they're going to be balanced. They're not going to try to push everything out all at once. They're going to be careful in their, in, in drawing down that inventory. Plus, some of the best wells in some of these areas, um, uh, the most prolific, you know, drilling part of it, they're, they're, they've, they've, they've used it up, they're exhausted, and they're moving to lesser, uh, you know, to wells that, that, that might produce less, um, less oil than those initial wells. Gotcha. Sort of the aging of these fields certainly has an impact on production. Brian, looking at the U.S. economy here over this next year, we mentioned diesel demand exploded in 2022. Our Bob Gasoline, as you look out to the summer economic health for the U.S. consumer, do we expect Americans to be driving more as we get into summertime? You know, there, there is some mixed thoughts on that. Um, the uh, we you know right after COVID we saw a big surge in gasoline demand, but it, it really slowed uh, really in the second quarter of last year. Um, there were a couple of reasons for that, namely the you know with prices uh, spiking with inflation, it did prompt people to pull back. Um, uh, we do see we do see demand you know being rather robust. It's just the question is you know how strong is it going to be? Some will note that this will be the first normal summer, if you will, for driving demand in the United States following COVID. So some are thinking that it's going to be a little stronger. Um, the government, uh, this is the Energy Information Administration, uh, part of the Department of Energy, sees it kind of flatlining um, this year. So really no, no real strong growth. And the other dynamic, which is interesting, there's really, it's two-faceted. One is that you are seeing, you know, gradual growth of electric vehicles, and you are seeing newer vehicles that have much better fuel efficiency. So, so while the driving, you know, while we are seeing more miles being driven at times, it doesn't necessarily mean that gasoline demand is going to really increase a lot. So that's something we're watching. If we do go into recession, um, that could that could also slow slow demand. So, so a couple of open questions there, but but not really seeing um, a real big surge. Um, at least that's not, at least as we're seeing in January. That's the expectation. All right, Brian. So it sounds like we might have a little more quiet year in the energy markets in 2023. Well, I'm not so sure about that one, though. We could, oh. yeah, but in the U.S., sure, a little domestically for sure. But what you're looking at is, um, you know, the big question about China. The big right. question about uh, that's going to be the economy. wild card as we get into this next year. We'll be picking yeah. Brian Milney's brain on that. He's the refined fuels editor at DTN. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. And folks, stay tuned for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA. 
Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. As a farmer, I want a cooperative that's there for me. Not the other way around. A local co-op that works for me and works with CHS. To connect me with local experts I know and trust. And put a global network of markets and supply at my fingertips. A co-op that's here to help us. Own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. Each season, farmers put it all on the line. So it's just good business to get every advantage you can. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can give yourself a season-long advantage over weeds, and it can help boost your yield potential. Show weeds you mean business and learn more about guaranteed weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash early. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. 
It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. to NCBA in New Orleans? February's monthly grind is taking place live on the showroom floor on Wednesday, February 1st from 9 to 10 a.m. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. Also, on Thursday at 12.30 in the Learning Lounge, I'll be facilitating NCGA's panel discussion with special guests from the U.S. MEF and Port of New Orleans on what you need to know about the value of trade and exports to your operation. We'll see you in New Orleans. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We certainly appreciate you joining us today and keeping up on these issues that impact agriculture. We're going to take a look at Washington, D.C. Huge issue happening in Washington. It's going to be driving all of the massive uh, major news headlines here for the foreseeable future, and that's the debt ceiling negotiation. On Tuesday, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy came out, spoke with reporters, and stuck by his insistence that Republicans are going to force steep federal debt reductions, and he's hoping they're going to be able to do this by working together to negotiate a budget accord, effectively a framework with President Biden and Senate Democrats, which then they hope they can put together to stave off a default. Kevin McCarthy yesterday said, quote, who wants to put the nation through some type of threat at the last minute with the debt ceiling? Nobody wants to do that, end quote. Now, it's worth noting that as of right now, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, has begun move making exemplary measures. She's going above and beyond to move money around. And even though we're technically near the debt ceiling, the government still has about six months before it actually becomes a crucial issue and they run out of money effectively to pay the bill. So there is some time on this discussion, but of course it's in all of the politicians' uh, advantage to make a big of stink about it as possible. And we'll see how this plays out. It is going to be quite some slug. House Republicans have said and they are committed to opposing any debt limit increase without serious spending cuts. 2023, it sounds like, is going to be a year that fiscal responsibility, maybe at least as a phrase, comes back into vogue in Washington, D.C. Republicans are really pushing this. And this could have some ramifications. If we think what's going on six months from now, 
Well, it's midsummer 2023, and the negotiations on a massive five-year farm bill should be hitting their stride. Whether or not they will be by then, of course, remains to be seen, but that would be the goal. Six months from now, as all of this debt ceiling fight is nearing its completion, the farm bill could be right there in Congress. And if Congress is going to be serious about taking a knife to federal spending, It'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out further on in the year. If you are committed to some of these ideals in the Farm Bill, or if you want to see some of your programs maintained in this next Farm Bill, I think it would behoove you to be active, be loud early and often on these issues so they can't be shoved under the rug if as things tend to happen in Washington, D.C., we get to midsummer, no decision, no uh, agreement has been found between Democrats and Republicans, and they just start cutting everything. Let's be let's be proactive as those farm groups are working now to get those grassroots opinions into Congress. We'll see how that plays out as this year goes on. Also, as this year goes on, as we roll into winter up here, of course, it is summer down in South America, and those Brazilians are starting their first crop soybean harvest. The uh, The beans that are planted on cotton ground are coming off now. Yields, widely variable. The early crops coming out, certainly, as you'd expect, they were planted very early to get this cotton in in ample time. Variable, but there. And importantly, and, and this is a conversation that we've had several times on the show, I think it's going to be one that comes up a lot in the context of agriculture over the next five years. Well, frequent guest on AOA, Pedro Deneca from MD Commodities has talked about this before. The Brazilians have an advantage that American growers just don't have in our back pocket. And that advantage is space, is land. In America, we've We've got all the tillable ground that will be tilled is tilled. We're not gonna go find a whole lot of additional acres. In Brazil, it's a different story. The Brazilian countryside has lots of Cerrado pasture ground that's fairly easy to convert into crop production. And earlier, excuse me, later in 2022, Lula da Silva, the new president of Brazil, was expected to be an environmentalist, perhaps crack down on the growth of acres across Brazil. However, one of his new ministers said that they believe that the planted area in Brazil can grow at 5% each year for the next several years without deforestation, which is President Silva's uh, big focus, protecting the Amazon. So the story here is Brazilian production is going to continue to grow as long as the economics make sense. They do have a lot of additional ground they can bring into production, but they pulled a lot of additional ground into production here this very growing season. And as these crops get to maturity and we get closer to summer, some of these crops are going to have to go into bins down in Brazil. And this summer could be the first time in Brazilian history that those growers have grown more crop than they have capacity to store. CONAB, effectively the USDA for Brazil, has come out and they have estimated Brazilians are going to harvest 189.5 million tons of soybeans, corn, and rice this summer. Total storage across all of Brazil is 187.9 million tons. So if all of this comes to fruition, if the weather works out through harvest, if the Brazilians are able to get all of these crops out and the yields do look like what they estimate them to look like now, it's entirely possible that Brazilian farmers could have 2 million extra metric tons that they just don't have room to store. It's a guarantee those tons will be moving on to the international market because some end user will have storage capacity. 
Before we go for the day, I do want to just focus back on the ongoing threat of HPAI, folks. This outbreak, though it is slowing down in the United States, the pace of new poultry facilities breaking with HPAI has slowed down since the early part of December. However, they are still occurring. Just this past week on Thursday in California, a poultry producer with 29,700 birds uh, was found to have HPAI. They had to do a cull, and uh, they found three other much smaller outbreaks in San Joaquin and Sonoma County. In addition to California, there have also been commercial flocks that have been uh, picked up with HPAI across the country. Remember, this is not just one geographic region. So we've had in this past two weeks, California, Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Oregon, South Dakota, and Washington. All states that have seen outbreaks of HPAI, and that's what prompted the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture to ban poultry from this last Pennsylvania farm show this last Saturday. Folks, all of these issues will continue into the future. We'll follow them here on AOA. Join us tomorrow. We'll talk meat exports with our friends at USME. And Arlen Suderman will join us with a breakdown of the markets. We'll see you tomorrow for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. What a great organization, helping families in need like ours. It's a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit farmrescue.org today. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.